The author, David Foster Wallace, described the experience of reading his novel, Infinite Jests, as intended to feel tornadic, like you're in the middle of a tornado. Um, that's what the last several weeks have felt like. I originally tried making this episode some kind of linear narrative, and it just wasn't happening, so welcome to the tornado of racism in America. Buckle up. George Floyd spent 8 minutes and 46 seconds gasping for breath. Police officers, some of whom were very experienced, knelt on his back. Until he didn't breathe anymore. As a psychiatrist, I'm often emphasizing how the words we use to describe someone's death have meaning. So I'll say, you know, completed suicide, not commit. And George Floyd was lynched. Welcome to Remotely Possible. This is a podcast about anxiety, uncertainty, and existential despair. And I recorded the narration in one take. Because I wasn't, like, gonna get it right a second time. So much of what we say about race is calculated and polite and wrong. So I'm not going to try to do that tonight. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, my general reaction to all this is fuck. A little more, a little more extended, Thea. <laughs> you, can do, you can do it. <laughs> fuck. That's my teammate. She is a Winnicott coach at Brooklyn Minds, which is the mental health practice we work at together. She works in the community with patients helping put their lives together, but tonight she's a field reporter on the revolution. TMS Tech and a Winnicott coach, and a black woman, which seems very important right now. So I just got home from a protest in Flatbush. Um, police would not let us pass. Uh, we were chanting with our hands up, and after a while, they decided to push the line backwards. Uh, we resisted, as in we stood there with our hands up. They pushed us and pushed us, and when we wouldn't move, they started to pepper spray us. And which now, as someone with a lot of white privilege, I'm like outraged at hearing this. Like, wow, this is really fucked up. So I called another colleague who is in the special operations community, and I'm not using names in this episode for semi-obvious reasons, and heard what he had to say. I mean, the things that U.S. police forces are apparently fully within their legal rights to do, like use tear gas, would literally have... It, it, it's against the Geneva Convention. It's an actual war crime. We cannot gas a civilian population. The person speaking has over a decade of experience 
in the special operations community. He has fought and killed for our right to do what my other colleagues were in the street doing, peacefully protesting. This is a perversion of what the United States stands for. We literally invade countries who treat their people the way that our police forces are on camera treating America. People started to back up uh, and run, and they then started to hit us with batons. Um, I fell. And then we reformed the line. It's disgusting in a lot of ways. So when someone whose life has been dedicated to protecting our freedoms tells me they're upset with what they're seeing, I take that pretty seriously. Well, the other night, well, last night, um, when the cops and protests were getting into, uh, into fights and they were trying to, the cops were trying to push back the protesters, I saw them bring out the batons and like start attacking people. And each time they tell us to back up and back up and kept pushing us and pushing us. And finally, there was a frustration in the air and people started to act out. Now, as a psychiatrist, my life has been saved by police officers on more than one occasion. I have been physically attacked in hospital settings. The police have been called and I have not died and my colleagues have not died thanks to them. And this is Flatbush. Brooklyn, New York, and these people are black people. Flatbush, at least the area I was in, is a predominantly black neighborhood. So, look, Americans love the police. Uh, they're a really highly uh, regarded part of society by a lot of people, but that's not the experience for black America, I've learned. There's tons of things you can do in that spectrum that don't involve actively using force against a human being, um, which really just makes the process easier across the board. If I don't have to hurt somebody, the only thing that hurting another person does for me is it further endangers my troops. Now this makes sense to me, because having run the show in a psychiatric emergency department where I have to protect myself, other patients, and violent people themselves from getting hurt. Sometimes we use violence, but oftentimes we don't. The start, like, I mean, what started this particular instance is when four cops literally lynched George Floyd. Um, and one guy, you know, put his, Eric Chauvin, I believe his name, put his, uh, put his knee on the man. We don't do that to terrorists who are actively trying to kill us. It was at that point that they called in more backup and they started to attack and arrest groups of gathered people from the neighborhood. Police officers, when they're called to stand trial for use of force, have a standard called a reasonable officer standard. Um, you know, I have to make it relevant for me as a white person to watch like humans be murdered by police and then people killing each other in the streets about it. 
Um, but I'm going to anyway because that's the kind of like justification we feel like we have to fucking deal with this stuff. There's an article I read about six months ago about yet another person being uh, slammed to the ground, handcuffed behind their back, and suffocated to death by the police. And I was shocked that the person was white until I read several paragraphs down that he had schizophrenia. And then I went, oh, that's what made it okay. Reasonable officers can only be judged on the basis of what someone would do in that one moment of terror when they have to decide to use force. I was so emotionally spent and so exhausted. And then we saw marauding bands of police officers going down the street just telling people to go home and attacking groups of people who were just on the street. Police officers are represented by unions. Those unions have spent 20 years bargaining for a lack of accountability to protect, in their minds, their members. This means police officers have the right to huddle and discuss their story before they have to speak to prosecutors. It means many other things. But importantly, whenever any officer stands trial, the jury is instructed per Chief Justice Rehnquist to not use the benefit of 2020 hindsight in judging their actions, but only what a reasonable, that is, terrified person would so do in the moment. Big deal. We literally have an entire job in the U.S. military to just validate whether or not we killed someone the right way. The court system is what's supposed to do that for police officers, but it doesn't. It just says, eh, it's okay. That's an actual thing. Um, we have, we have entire organizational structures dedicated to the legality of murder. Um, or killing black or brown people in America, if you're a police officer, has literally never been ruled against the law. Ever. To not call it murder, to call it, to, to basically call it killing combatants. Like, that's what a JAG does. Overseas, when they're deployed, they tell you whether or not, like, you can kill this person. And sometimes, even though we can kill someone, we don't, because they have a much higher value as an intelligence asset. Or for any number of other reasons. Or they're not actively shooting at us when we go get them. That happens a ton. Because sometimes when you see 20 or 30 goons show up outside of your house, breach your door with a shotgun round, rush in, and then point all their guns at you, you're not going to fight back. And then, okay, well, he's not shooting back at us, so we're going to take him in, and then... You don't get to kill someone in the U.S. military, deployed in the field in Afghanistan, even if someone's a terrorist, if they're not pointing a gun at you and about to pull the goddamn trigger. Because one, one of the things I don't want to do is, is vilify police officers. And, and, I mean, and that's, to be perfect, yeah, honest, yeah. You, yeah. you may not want to vilify police officers, but the things I've seen police officers do in the past week, while they know they're being recorded, are actively the actions of villains. 
This hit me like a ton of bricks. This is not okay. But most of the time when people call for help and the police arrive, they're dealing with a crisis. And a lot of those crises involve people with mental illness. And police officers are being asked to do a thing that, like, it's a whole medical specialty. Like, I'm a psychiatrist. It was 45,000 hours of training to learn how to calm people down when they're really upset and they're having experiences that we don't have access to. And so if you're called to the scene of a crisis and someone's acting in a way that's really strange and really scary and you have a gun and you've been told protect yourself, don't let yourself get hurt, don't let this person harm you, uh, and, you and you know nothing bad's going to happen to you if you pull that trigger, um, you're going to pull that trigger more often than, than not. And, and that's about a thousand times a year. You're about... Uh, God knows. It doesn't even matter the, the percentage of time you're more likely to be killed if you're black and mentally ill. The fact that we have a statistic for that is fucked up enough. Help isn't helpful for black America, and that's just a fact of life. You know, I have, I have friends in New York who are talking about just the cruelty they see in these police officers' eyes. Um, and what's worse, what's, what's truly evil about this whole system is even in the throes of this violence, they're exhibiting racist and preferential behaviors towards white protesters versus black protesters um, or brown protesters. Uh, like they're, they're actively, you know, taking it easier on white people because they're white. And this is just fucking killing me at this point. Ugh. Look, what's happening in the streets is not okay. It's not been okay for hundreds of years. And police officers are part of a system designed to keep order, and order used to mean slaves. That's just why they're there. Things I don't even fucking think about, man. Like, I'll, I'll go for a run or a rock at night now. I'll like sometimes I'll go on my own but like if I don't go earlier like hopefully like well I guess I just won't run like one day I just asked like why do you just only run with me why do you only run with me and she's like we're, we're in a quiet neighborhood in Florida and I'm a black woman like I there's a bunch of Trump signs everywhere like I'm not going running on my own I was like wow yeah I, I've never even thought along those lines like I don't question my safety when I go places I'm I'm hyper vigilant for a lot of other reasons, but like, there's never a question in my mind. Like, if someone attacks me, it's not, it's an unexpected event. I'm not expecting that at any moment someone might just attack me for the color of my skin because I'm in a neighborhood. Hey, I'm Dr. Willow Sash. Uh, I am a postdoctoral fellow at Brooklyn Mines. Um, I am an African American psychologist living right now in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Dr. Osei is a scholar of racial tension and multiculturalism and helped me explain what it's like for the black kids who I've been treating at Bellevue all these years. Funeral, but to the average African-American, this is like, this is a fact. This is not a revelation just because now we have better cell phone coverage of these crimes. I remember that I was in Cleveland 
the day after Tamir Rice was murdered in the playground. And I was working with 12-year-old boys in the Cleveland School District, you know. And I was devastated that day. And I, I went into that school expecting those boys to be devastated that their schoolmate, their, a, a kid they used to play with at the playground, was just murdered. And to them, it was nothing. It was, it was more shocking because they knew a dozen people that had been murdered by the police. They knew that, that that was just the latest murder that year. It just happened to be one that rose to the national conversation. But in Cleveland that year, there's probably 30, 50 police shootings. It, it, like my level of outrage at watching all of this, that's privilege too. Yes. Because to understand this as anything other than the rules of engagement would be a misunderstanding. Black America for a long time has known, watch out when you talk to the cops because they can kill you. Nothing's going to stop them if they want to. And they do on camera and a thousand other times every year. And I wish it was as easy as saying it was a couple or even a lot of bad apples, but that is not as, sufficient. As, as far as privilege goes, I'm an Ivy League, I'm a combat veteran in the Ivy League. I'm fucking, I mean, I'm an Arab Jew, but I look white enough that no one fucking asks that question. I wear a suit and you can't see my tattoos. And I, I can fit in anywhere from fucking West Hampton to fucking, like, the slums of Bangladesh. Like, I'm good. You know what I mean? Yeah. I have levels of privilege that people use to run for the presidency. But the magic of America is that white privilege runs out as soon as power wants it to. My colleague's married to a black woman. And a huge part of this is, like, it's the tacit knowledge of, like, I'm married to a black woman. My kids are going to be black. And, like, this is, this is like, their place. Usually, we'd have credits now. George Floyd. Ahmaud Arbery. Breonna Taylor. Trayvon Martin. Eric Garner. Ayanna Jones. Freddie Gray. Michael Brown. Sandra Land, Walter Scott, and a kid on a playground in Cleveland named Tamir Rice.